Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Father, we thank you today for your word, and God, we're just looking forward to a time where we can understand your word better. We want to know you. We want to know what you have to say. We want to follow you wholeheartedly, and so we ask that you would use this time for your glorious purposes in and through our lives, so we give you this time. We ask that you would use it in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for joining us. We're in Amos chapter 3. I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter, and then we're going to come back through, and I will give comments based on my time of studying the book of Amos. So here's what it says, Amos chapter 3. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you. For all your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Some translations say unless they can be agreed. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in the city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Verse 9, proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod, this is, that's uh, the Philistines, and on the citadels of the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great uh, tumults or the turmoil within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. Those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels, their fortresses. Therefore, says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. And I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. It doesn't sound like a very encouraging chapter. It is a chapter of judgment, and that is what we're reading today. Just by way of review, you might remember chapter one was where the prophet Amos introduces himself, and then he pronounces judgment on five of Israel's neighbors. That goes into chapter two, where he also pronounces judgment on the Moabites. And then he turns towards Judah, which is going to be the southern kingdom of Israel because they had a schism and they divided prior to this. So you have the southern kingdom, that's Judah, half tribe of Benjamin, then you have the northern kingdoms, which is the other 10 tribes of Israel. And so that's going to refer to Israel. 
The prophet Amos is going to prophesy against the northern kingdoms primarily. Judah is somewhat included in that, but there has been a schism. There is a separation at this time. He's going to spend the majority of his time, if not all of it, pronouncing judgment and calling out the northern tribes of the northern kingdom. And so this is important for us to remember because half of the chapter, half of chapter two was focused on pronouncing judgment upon Israel. Chapter three just continues to unfold that very thing. And it's what we read about. And there's some more explanation, not only as to why, but also what God will do. And some of this actually comes to pass the way that it's said. We might, be, we not, we might not be able to interpret it properly if, we're, if we don't understand exactly what's being said here, but there are things that are said in Amos chapter 3 that God physically actually did do. And so let's go ahead and look through it again just with those eyes knowing what's going on here. Verse 1 says, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. Once again, the judgment word of the Lord is this is a word against you. Now, not every word that God brings is against people. Certainly, there were many prophetic words prior to this. There were many exhortations, warnings that were not against them. It may have been against their behavior, but it was really for their restoration. Now, this word saying, this is, this is the word of the Lord against you, is absolutely a pronouncement of judgment, okay? And that's really important to know because we're going to follow that all the way through the nine chapters of Amos. There seems to be a bit of hope, return to me, declares the Lord, type of language in the next chapter and the following. But what you're going to see is it's really kind of an unfolding conversation where although there's a bit of an issuing of hope, to the people of Israel, the reality is, is that you see throughout the book it's too late and pronouncement of judgment has occurred and the judgment is unfolding. And so he says, hear this word against you. And this is not, uh, again, always the case with how God um, speaks to people, but we're in a, he's a prophet of judgment at this point. And so this is the last resort of a loving God. This is not God's first attempt to get the attention of Israel or call them to repentance. He also says in verse 1 that this is against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. The whole family is talking about all the tribes of Israel. I don't believe that's excluding Judah per se, but his eyes are focused on the northern kingdom. And so we're talking about all of the tribes of Israel, those that came up out of Egypt. Verse 2, you only have I chosen among the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. God here is reminding them that they were a chosen people. Now, this is echoing Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 through 9, where Moses shares God's word with the people on how God chose them, why God chose them according to his promise to their forefathers. He's saying, I didn't choose you because you were the strongest people in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I didn't choose you because... You were the wisest people. Um, you were the best people. I chose you because of my promise to your forefathers. He chose them and set them apart, and they carried a special purpose. They were to bring forth the temple, the law, the sacrificial system, the priesthood. They were also to give birth to the Messiah. It was through Israel that the Messiah would be born. Jesus came as a Jew. 
He was of the house of Israel. We know this. And so they were to preserve the messianic line. God deals with them severely and swiftly because of the purpose that he gave to them. This is why they were utterly accountable. You'll notice that in the first chapter of Amos, the judgments that were pronounced were simple. It was based on their behavior. The judgments that come against Israel is not just their behavior. It's the accountability that they had. They knew what they were supposed to do. They had been called and set apart with a holy purpose that God had given them among the nations, and they were accountable to that purpose. And that's why verse 2 says, Therefore I will punish you for all iniquities. Why? Because I called you. I chose you out of the nations of the earth. For what purpose? Well, that's what Deuteronomy chapter 7 talks about. That's what the rest of some of the Torah talks about. Israel was given a privilege, and it was because they had misused and abused this privileged purpose that God had called them for that he was going to judge their iniquity, and it made it more severe, so to speak, because they were set apart among the peoples. This privilege was not to be used to rob other people or to oppress other people. They had the Torah. They had the moral compass. They had the law. They knew how they were supposed to treat people, and yet they did not do it. They had fallen into such a moral decline that now it's too late. Now it's too late. Now judgment must come. And as we talked about yesterday, we can reflect on a book like this and say, it is not too late for us. It is not too late for us as the people of God. Now, are we going to receive judgment as those who are living in a dispensation of grace the same way that this is pronounced on the people of Israel? Well, yes and no. No, because we're under the blood of Jesus, and it's what we believe and not just how we behave, but our behavior does matter. Are we stewarding the purposes of God in the same way that Israel was called to steward the purposes of God, that they were chosen, set apart, to be useful to what God had called them to do. Is the church of today doing that same thing? Are we in our calling and in our knowledge and in our understanding of making disciples of all nations and preaching the gospel of Jesus, are we about God's purpose or are we doing our own thing? Are we using the purpose and the privilege that we have as those who are called and chosen and set apart from the nations of the earth, from the families of the earth, from the people of the earth? Are we using that? In order to bring more people to Jesus, are we using that to point our finger at those who don't know what we know or have what we have? That is something that we can glean from and take away from this passage. They were chosen to know God and bring forth His purposes, but it seems that their privilege had equaled the opposite of why it was even given. And this is why the punishment was just. God is a just God. He does nothing unless it is fully and completely just. We may not understand it. We may think, well, that doesn't seem right or that doesn't feel like a loving God. Absolutely, it's a loving God. Absolutely, it's a loving God. He grieves over having to judge our sin, but he also grieves over our sin, unlike sometimes we do. See, sometimes people, we don't grieve over our sin. God grieves over our sin, invites us into repentance, and then he grieves over judgment, but he has to execute judgment in order to cut off what we are unwilling to cut off. And that's what we're reading about here today in the book of Amos. And yes, it's grievous. Yes, it's difficult. And yes, it is going to happen again in the righteous judgment of the Lord when he comes back in his second coming. 
And we read about here also in uh, verse 2, or sorry, verse 3, he goes on and he gives seven questions which reveal that certain actions have certain results. They're not really meant to be details that we're supposed to study so much and say, well, this is what that means and this is what that means. Really, they're just rhetorical questions. And they go like this, do do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment or unless they are agreed? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? And then the final question, which I think is separate from these other ones, If calamity occurs in the city, has the Lord not done it? We're talking about the sovereignty of God in this particular question. Certain actions bring about certain results. That's what the prophet is saying. That's what God is saying through the prophet. If you do this, this is what will happen. And so here's what he concludes with, right? If calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? As this comes upon you, as these judgments occur, is it not the Lord that is doing this? And in a sense, is it not deserved? Is it not a response to what you have and have not done, right? Your omission and your commission of your sins and the things that have transpired. Last chapter, we studied how Israel was oppressing the poor. They were robbing, they were pillaging, they were looting. They were using their military power and strength to gain what they wanted to do what they wanted. And that was from the king right on down to the cattle. This was not just one person or a small group of people in this nation. The whole nation had become corrupt. Was there a remnant among the people? Certainly, there always is. But he's speaking generally to the entire nation because as a people, this was the covenant people of God, covenant people of Yahweh, who had the, they had the the law, they knew the Torah, they had dismissed it, and now God's bringing about judgment. And this is a consequence of their actions. That's what these seven questions are really uh, all about when we come to understand the disasters that are going to transpire. Verse 7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Now, I just wanted to make a comment because I've heard and Pentecostal and charismatic teaching, which again, I'm, I am Pentecostal as a, as a distinction of what I believe. I believe in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the baptism of, of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, the gifts of the Spirit still in operation today. I believe in all that. But I would say in charismatic circles, I've heard Amos chapter 3 and verse 7 preached as though God still only speaks to his prophets before he does anything. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not what this verse means, and it's just shameful that so often we make comments about verses and we don't really even know what they mean. A lot of times the verses are simplistic, and in the context they completely make sense, but to pluck a verse like this out of its context, if you can imagine, just think with me for a second, that this whole chapter is about judgment against Israel in a specific time. We're talking about 700 BC. We're we're, we're talking about a specific time, a specific event. We can certainly glean from what is being said, but we cannot forget or dismiss the context. And so to pluck this verse out, it's honestly should be illegal. We want to understand it, but it means something. And so surely the Lord God does nothing 
unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. This is another way of God saying, he has, God, Yahweh, has spoken to his prophets. His prophets have spoken to Israel. And now the consequences that are coming upon Israel are accountability, right? Because he's already said what he was going to do. Surely Yahweh has spoken to his prophets. He's given them his secret counsel. He shared with them what he was going to do. He's given them warnings. And now he's pronouncing judgment through Amos. That's what it's saying. It's really not more than that. And I think sometimes we pluck it out and we say, well, God's not going to do anything. Like as if the sovereign God is going to tell every single thing to those who are called prophets or call themselves prophets today. And that's before he ever does anything. That is absolutely not what this is talking about. It's just a, um, it's just an understanding of the context here based on God had already spoken to the prophets. The prophets had come. The prophets had spoken. The people are accountable. That's what it means. It's very, very simple. It doesn't mean more than that. You're welcome. God bless you. Whenever you're hearing somebody on TBN quote Amos chapter 3 and verse 7, please remember that the context was the judgment towards Israel. Who wrote it? Who did they write it to? What did it mean to them? What does it mean to us? We cannot just automatic, ex automatically extrapolate principles because we think it could mean something for our times. That is not the way to read the Bible. That is not the way that we're going to read the Bible here on the Daily Word. That is not the way that I study the Bible or preach the Bible. Certainly we can glean, certainly we can, certainly we can learn, but you cannot learn what the Bible means for us today until you learn what the Bible has meant for people that it was written to. This is why I'm not the biggest fan. Sorry for some of you. I love you. I'm not the biggest fan of devotionals. And the reason that I'm not the biggest fan of devotional books that are out there in the Christian bookstore is because I think they have this point that they're trying to get people to glean something off of verses that usually don't quite mean what they're saying. When you take a verse out of its context in order to give somebody a daily encouragement, it might seem like a wonderful thing. But that is not why God gave us the Bible. God gave us the Bible so that we could know God, that we could know His plan, that we could study, that we could memorize, that we could understand, that we could walk in His righteousness confidently knowing who He is, knowing who we are, knowing what His plan is. And that requires an astute study of you and I. We've got to study the Word of God. This is not about getting something out of it every day. I've told my family this before. I've told many people before. I'm concerned when all we try to do is just get something for us out of the Bible. It is about understanding. When we have understanding, we will learn of God. We will follow God. We will know God deeply and intimately. But think about this. If we're constantly plucking verses out that don't mean what what we want them to mean or something that we gain some kind of encouragement from, what if we're wrong? And if we're wrong, it, it, the power of the Word of God is not attached to a wrong version of, of what it doesn't mean. And so we've got to move beyond that. Study to show yourself approved, a workman unto God who, who rightly divides the Word of truth. And you might say, well, Ben, I like, I like my daily devotionals and encouragements. I know, I know, I'm not trying to mess with everybody and everything. I'm just saying, like, is that the purpose of the Bible? You know, young Jewish boys and girls in, in Bible times and in some Orthodox settings today 
When they study the Torah, they're memorizing the Torah. You know, there's these sections in the scripture of Deuteronomy where it's like, write these commands on your doorposts. Write them out on your fence posts on your field, right? As you're coming into your home, as you come into your field, as you come into your home, as you walk into your house, it's like you're being immersed with the word. It's, it's, it's like every threshold, every doorway. He goes on to saying like when you're talking to your children, when you rise up and when you go to sleep and when you're going here and you're going there, make sure that the word is in your mouth. Make sure that you're telling them of what God says, his righteous decrees, his laws, his statutes. Why? Because we need a life that is immersed in the truth of God's word. Not just what I'm going to get out out of it today, but we've got to be baptized, immersed, constantly overwhelmed with God's word. The reason that Christian churches can go so far astray is because they really are not interested in knowing God's word. They want a little bit of encouragement, and we've got to change that culture. We've got to move beyond just what I can get out of something so that I can feel better about my day. We're never going to live the way that God calls us to live if we're not going to consume His Word. We've, we can't read about people that did that and then not try to put ourselves in the same category. We've got to be people consumed with His Word. I know that's a tangent, but it's a really, really good one. <laughs> Amen. It's a really good one. Verse 8, he goes on, A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? This verse is just another, another way of saying, just as a lion roars and it echoes, so when God speaks to the prophets, um, the prophet must echo what God is saying. A lion has roared. We're talking about that judgment, that, that final warning before a lion can, you know, goes after its prey. God has spoken. The prophet must echo what God says has said. That's all he's saying here in verse 8. Verse 9 and verse 10, proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults or the turmoil within her and the oppressions in her midst. This is like saying, tell everyone among the Philistines and the Egyptians to come and see a people, Israel, you know, stand on the mountains of Samaria and look at this people observe them, the great unrest, the way they oppress their people, the way they've stored up ill-gotten gain. All the while, they knew better. They knew what to do. They had my favor. They misused it, and they did what they wanted. Come and observe this great reproach. This is what he's saying to the other nations, to the neighboring nations. Come and look what my people have done, but they do not know how to do what is right, even though they should have known they didn't because of all the years of them doing the opposite. This is what it is equaled. Come and watch this movie and look at this scene of a people who made a decision somewhere along the way that they were going to do what was right in their own eyes. Other nations, come and look. I called them. I set them apart. I treated them with loving kindness. I made promises to their ancestors. I again and again and again came to them, prophet after prophet, word after word, warning after warning, and now it's too late. Come and see what they have done with all that I have given them. Watch this movie. Grab the popcorn. Stand on the hills and see what it is that they have done and what they have known. And now what God is about to do. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels, and you will be looted. He's saying, therefore, because of 
how they are and what they've done. An enemy will overrun your land. In other words, I will allow others to do to you what you have been doing to them. This judgment actually manifest, manifested with Assyria coming in. This was 722 BC. Some of you know your history in that. We talked about it a little bit yesterday. But God, there's two forms of judgment the way that I see it. There's one where God has his hand on a people, his hand of protection and blessing. And judgment is he removes his, the hand of God, is removed, the protection, the blessing. And that which is lurking in the shadows rushes in like a mighty flood and does to that people or that person what God was not allowing in the previous season. The second is where the mighty hand of God moves against the nation or a person. That is another form of judgment. So the releasing of God's hand of protection and blessing or the moving of God's hand of judgment and his righteous judgments for his own purposes. This kind of judgment is where God's hand was upon them. They had the privilege of stewarding God's purposes. He removes his hand. They did not listen. As, and so that's what he does as a result of that. And the Assyrians come in and they deport them from 722 BC and the northern tribes come under judgment. Now the same thing does happen to Judah um, sometime later. We see that the Babylonians do this to them and uh, that's for another time, but we see that judgment comes to both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so that's what he's saying here. This is the enemy he's referring to as the Assyrians. In verse 12, he says, thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Now, I, if I didn't study this, I would have no clue what it's talking about. But this passage is a vivid description of the small remnant that's going to be left in Israel after the Assyrian invasion. So in other words, after judgment comes, after the Assyrians come in, there will be a remnant. So a shepherd was not responsible for animals devoured by wild beasts in Israel. And we read in Exodus chapter 22 and verse 13, this very thing. Um, but a shepherd had to provide evidence um, the, the need to rescue any uneaten bones and scraps. So a shepherd who's taking care of, let's say, someone else's flock, this is re reflected in Exodus 22. If a wild beast takes it out, they're, they're not responsible to prove that. But what they do is they have to go search for some kind of evidence to show that if something was eaten or devoured or whatever, that this is what had happened. And so God's using this depiction that's in Exodus 22, and it's actually in a few other places in the Torah, to say that a shepherd, God is going to save the scraps, so to speak. There will be a remnant of this destruction that's left over, and that remnant will be in Samaria, but this remnant is like a scrap. So it's a like a vivid picture. It's a vivid description of what they understood in the book of Exodus and the Torah. It's saying that there will be a remnant. It's a powerful image. Israel would have understood this. Um, often when we study stuff like this, we wouldn't know. And so that's what the reflection is. And then he goes on to say, in verse 13, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. Now, um, there were two, when, when, the northern, when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had divided, Judah, Benjamin, and then the 10 tribes, 
when they had divided, Jeroboam was the first king of Israel. Jeroboam made a decision because Judah was in Jerusalem. And so he didn't want anybody to go to Jerusalem. They had this schism. They were in division. And so he basically, in the land of Dan and, um, and also in the land of Bethel, he had two different temples built. And in those temples, this is where the people of Israel could go and worship. This is where the priests would be, and they could continue their sacrificial system and all that they would still do, but they just could no longer go into Jerusalem. And so that's why the first king did that. Now, the temple that was in Dan is not mentioned here because many believe it was probably destroyed, or at least it was overshadowed. The one in Bethel was sort of that pride place that they had. And so here's what the Lord is saying is he's saying that, I will punish the altars of Bethel. You know, you have in um, the horns, the altar would be this large stone and the horns would be sort of these elevated points. Sometimes that, that would be the four points of the altar. And uh, in the law, there was this understanding, not only there, but you see it in First Kings actually as well, where somebody would come and seek asylum and cling to the altar. It wasn't guaranteed that they would have asylum because there were people that clung to the altar or the horns of the altar and they were still slain. But God is essentially saying that I'm going to bring down your false worship. And he goes on to say in this passage in verse 15, I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. I'm going <laughs> to, your ivory will also perish, these great houses. I'm going to judge you and I'm going to attack your false worship. So your temple in Bethel and these altars, these horn altars, there will be no place of escape, is what he's saying. I will tear these down, and I'm going to deal with your summer house, and your winter house, and your ivory in your houses. I'm going to tear down that sign of your oppression, that you stole money, and you looted, and you robbed from your own people and from other nations. You did what I did not teach you to do. You took what I told you not to take. You did this, so I'm going to deal with these two issues, your oppression, and your robbery, and I'm going to deal with your false worship. That's what God is talking about. And these are two very serious indictments against the people of Israel. For them to be the example that God had called them to be, for them to be the people that God had called them to be, these things were detestable, and these are the reasons in which God was bringing about His righteous judgment in their lives. And so this is chapter 3 in a nutshell. We're ending it with a very clear picture of their corruption and a very clear picture of God's judgment against their corruption. You say, Pastor Ben, what are we going to get out of this passage today? Well, we're going to get the same thing out of it today that we got out of it yesterday. And that is God is right and God is righteous and God is sovereign. But let's remind ourselves this, God is God. God is the one who decides what is going to happen. The more that I read books of the Bible from the Old Covenant, the more I appreciate the New Covenant. Without the New Covenant, without the blood of Jesus covering our sin, we are the same as everyone else under the Old Covenant. We would do the same. Lest we think that we are righteous, lest we think that we are above them, lest we think that we are, we are somehow exempt from what we read about, in those that had become the opposite of what God had called them to be. You and I would do the same thing. The whole point of the doctrine of the fall from Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, Eve being deceived, Adam being disobedient, 
the fall, the doctrine of the fall, it implies that you and I, if it were me and my wife, we would have done the same thing that Adam and Eve did. If you and I were of the tribe of Israel, if we were Philistines, we would do the things that they did. We would be under the judgment that they were under. And so for us, when we read of these judgments of the Lord, first, we want to have a fear of God. Second, we want to have a gratitude in our hearts for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin, that restores us to right relationship with God. And we want to have repentance in our hearts to realize that we cannot just neglect so great a salvation. That's what we've got to get out of the Old Covenant. So many people read the Old Testament and they go, God seems angry. God seems like he's mad. He seems like he's always upset. No, God is grieved because people are wicked. People are vile. People are sinners. I know this is not popular to talk like this, but it's the truth. Whenever you see Jesus on the cross, whether it's in your mind, whether it's you read it in scripture, whether it's some kind of depiction that you see in a painting or, or something that you read about or see, you've got to be reminded Jesus had to go to the cross. This violent death of God the Son, the incarnation of God, was so necessary and it's for us maybe not understandable because of the wickedness of humanity. It's almost like we forget how bad we have been, how bad human beings are. And that's why there's, there's this thinking that we can have in our day. We're not that bad. I'm not that bad. Because we sort of separate ourselves from every other human being and we think, well, I just live a peaceable, quiet life. I don't murder, pillage, rape, steal lie that much. I don't do really that bad, but we are all of the human race and we take part in that which has grieved the Holy Spirit. We all are a part of the problem and the problem is that we separated ourselves from God. We walked away from God. He created us in his image according to his likeness. We walked away. We did our own thing. We decided to be our own God. We called our own shots. We decided what was right and what was wrong and we continued you to move the marker that helps us to feel like we're not that bad. And the reality is whether our bad looks like it's not that bad or our bad is very clear and ends us in a prison sentence, the fact is that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have grieved the Holy Spirit. All of us have not lived up to God's righteous standards, and therefore all of us incur the wrath of God. And it is because of the blood of Jesus that you and I could ever stand in the presence of an almighty God. There is absolutely no way that our own righteousness could ever get us to a place where we could stand before an almighty and all-powerful and all-loving and all-just God who is righteous, perfect, complete, lacking nothing in and of himself. He created us for a special purpose. And what we read about from scripture is his people have walked away from everything that he has said for them to do. But God in his love and his mercy and his kindness has constantly pursued us even to the cost of his own life, death on a cross, and resurrection to prove just exactly who he is. This to us is the good news of Jesus Christ, that God would come after us, that God would love us so much that it would be unfathomable for us. And I'll tell you, if there's anything that we need in our generation, it's the fear of the Lord. 
It's to go back to a place of being a holy people. What do I mean by holy? I mean that we would live our lives set apart for his glory. You and I are not created to just get a nice job, have a nice house, have a nice little family. Our world is filled with brokenness and chaos and sin and wickedness. And Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the way. And when our hearts wake up, that's what it means to be woke. When we are truly alive in him, we are called to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ that all men and all women, young and old, would be given the legitimate opportunity to know Jesus Christ as Lord, to bow their knee and to confess with their mouth that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, because there's some day we are going to cross that threshold and stand before an almighty God with our deeds in our hands, our righteousness in our hands. And if the blood of Jesus isn't covering those deeds because they're not enough, the Bible says that our righteousness is filthy rags. We cannot present God filthy rags on the day of judgment. They have to be rags covered in blood. Jesus' blood. His blood is perfect. His blood is precious. It was his death. That's what it represents. It's his death. He died for us in our place. If our righteousness is not covered by Jesus' righteousness, we will not make it. We will not stand before God. We will be under his judgment. And that's not okay. That's not what we want. That's not what I want for anybody. And so if there's anything that we could do today, it's examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Do we know God? Have we repented and turned to Jesus Christ, given him our entire life, and said, my life is, is now yours? I repent for my sins. I give you my life. I surrender myself to you. Use my life for your glory, for your purposes. Help me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Set me apart for you and help me to live for you each and every day. If we Examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, that we are born again, that we are right with God. Number one. Number two, ask for the fear of God in our lives. Let's ask for the fear of the Lord. I can't even imagine what it would have been like for Amos to be trembling to say these words because not only is he a messenger, but he's a recipient. I mean, think about Jeremiah for a second. Jeremiah is going to give, um, he's going to give this message of judgment to Judah from the king down to the cattle, and he's telling them, you're going into exile, it's too late, the whole book of Jeremiah, and you get up to this place where finally the Babylonians come in, they exile them to Babylon. There is a remnant that's still in Jerusalem, but they're just, they're just a shadow of what they once were. And Jeremiah is deeply affected by this. He's in prison. He's thrown into a hole in the ground. He's, they try to kill him. He ends up being killed. Here's a prophet who not only is a messenger, but he's a recipient of that message as well. It affects him deeply. And so we are too the same thing. We are messengers and we are recipients. We want to have the fear of God on our lives that we would tremble when we say the things that we do. Why? Because we understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We understand the precious blood of Jesus. We understand that we've been released of judgment because Jesus was judged on our behalf. How, how does that change the way that we live? How does that change the way that we see other people? How does that change the way that we love, radically love people? As Jesus radically loved us, we should never, ever look down on other people. Yeah, we, we understand that there's a lot of wickedness and unrighteousness in our world, but so was there in us and so is there in us. And the only reason that we will ever stand before God ourselves is because of the precious blood of Jesus. And so we cannot use that as a weapon of judgment against others that simply just are not living in Christ right now. Let's go out 
and make known who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what that means for those that repent and turn to him wholeheartedly. Maybe thousands and tens of thousands will not turn to Christ because of us, but what if one or two do? What if one or two do? Let's live our life in such a way where we can see people released of the judgment that is coming, that is against sin. That judgment is coming, and it's coming against sin. And those that remain and abide in their sin will be judged. But God so loved the world that he sent Jesus that that wrath and that judgment does not have to come upon people unless they choose. But let's go and give them that choice. Amen? That's what I want to stop this with. That's the hope that we have. Now we're not just reading the Old Covenant because we live in the New Covenant, so we understand it in light of what we have. Let's be grateful. Let's ask for the fear of God in our lives that we would ever live before Him as holy people. And we could smile saying that. Amen? Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we as Christians are not under judgment. But as we read about your righteous judgment in the Old Testament, we reflect on you being a merciful God. That, Lord, you have attempted so many times to get a hold of your people. And now you sent your son and his precious blood was spilled. He rose again on the third day so that we could receive the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Lord, that we live in the knowledge of what angels long to understand, of what prophets pointed towards but did not fully live in or understand themselves. But we are on this side of the cross and we know things that men and women in the past did not know. How much more responsible are we today to help everyone have a legitimate opportunity to name Jesus Christ as Lord. I pray today for the fear of God on our lives, that we would live with a holy reverence. We would live holy lives set apart for you, not just doing what we want, not just being how we want, not just responding how we want, but with our life in your hands, would you direct us and guide us the way that pleases you? And I thank you for that. Would you also send us out today, give us divine appointments and opportunities to make Jesus Christ known, not in some weird, strange way, but in a real way. Equip us with your power. Holy Spirit, fill us. Put words in our mouth. Give us the gifts of the Holy Spirit and release them through our lives. Give us courage and boldness to not be afraid or ashamed of revealing who Jesus is to those around us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.